Hi, I'm Michael O'Connell, host of the It's All Journalism podcast. For more than a decade, It's All Journalism has produced a weekly podcast featuring interviews with working journalists, educators, and media thought leaders, all discussing the ever-changing media landscape. We've covered a wide range of topics such as solutions journalism, mental health in the newsroom, local news startups, investigative reporting, online harassment, and new technology. Over the years, It's All Journalism partnerships have played important roles in expanding our reach and ensuring that we are able to continue producing our weekly podcast series. We are currently seeking new partners to help us keep this podcast going. If you believe in It's All Journalism's mission, if you want to see these conversations continue, go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the partnerships link and find out how we can share your company or organization's good work with a wider audience. Maybe we can produce a podcast series for you or host your next webinar. The It's All Journalism team is ready to spotlight your organization's good work and keep these important conversations going. Go to itsalljournalism.com, click on the partnerships link, and let's collaborate. And now, here's our latest episode. I just felt like we needed our own authentic and radical voice on behalf of the black community and we needed our own infrastructure to be able to say whatever we wanted uncensored and without being whitewashed what do you do when the local media isn't covering your community the way you think it should today's guest took an entrepreneurial non-journalistic and community activist approach to deliver news to kansas city's underserved black populace i'm michael o'connell this is it's all journalism Ryan Sorrell is the founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of the Kansas City Defender. Since its launch in 2021, the Defender has become one of the nation's fastest-growing black digital news startups. Ryan was recently named an Emerging Leader of the Year by the Institute for Nonprofit News. That, plus the Defender's success, is more than enough reason to talk to him about his work. Ryan, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. You know, I'm reading a little bit about The Defender. You're doing some really interesting work. But before we get too deep into it, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, when did you discover that you wanted to be a journalist? Definitely. Well, I think it's certainly very important for me to provide some background just because I actually don't necessarily consider myself a journalist always in that specific regard. I'm originally from an area called Lee Summit, which is a suburb outside of Kansas City. My dad was in the military, so my family kind of moved around quite a bit. So I grew up a little bit in Michigan, and then I moved to Lee Summit and went there through high school. I went to college at Loyola University of Chicago, and my freshman year was when Trayvon Martin was murdered. Then the following year was Mike Brown and then Sandra Bland, Rakia Boyd, and essentially all of that happened during the time period that I was in college. And so that was a very transformative time period for me. And that was also when the Black Lives Matter movement first emerged. I was essentially thrown into community organizing. That was when I decided that that was my purpose, essentially. And I very quickly found that out. And I actually had a, I started a Black student newspaper when I was in college at Loyola. Started that and I actually almost ended up dropping out of school just to pursue that because I was spending so much time running. At one point, we had over 20 people on our staff when I was running the student, the black student newspaper that I started. I wanted to drop out of school. I ended up getting a 0.9 GPA for that semester that I was running it. And my parents, of course, weren't very happy about that. So I ended up just finishing up and graduating. After I graduated, I 
worked in DC. I did two internships. I got my first job back in Chicago at a digital PR agency where I learned things like web development, analytics, things that were very helpful, things like SEO that were very helpful, and especially social media strategy. I was doing that for two years up until 2020, when, uh, of course, the pandemic and the George Floyd uprisings took place. And so I just decided to quit my job on a whim. I felt very purposeless at it while all of this was happening in the world. And so I quit my job and I moved back to Kansas City and I started a community organization. And I did that for about a year. I was a full-time community organizer for about a year until 2021. And during that time period, I just felt like we were doing a lot of protests. We were doing a lot of mutual aid and community work, but I always felt very limited by how the media and the narrative described what it was that we were doing. And I felt like it was always very inaccurate. Oftentimes it was dehumanizing and racist. And I just felt like we needed our own authentic and radical voice on behalf of the Black community. And we needed our own infrastructure to be able to say whatever we wanted uncensored and without being whitewashed. And so that was why I started it in 2021. I think the other piece was, in addition to the community need, there's also very much a business opportunity. And I I don't mean that in the sense of profit, but I mean that in the sense of there are very few, if any, local news outlets across the country that effectively reach Gen Z or that have transitioned effectively into using social media to reach Gen Z and young people at the local level. So that was kind of the business value proposition that I identified also. Yeah. And and actually one of the things that people don't always think about with local journalism, local, you know, media is that they provide a platform for businesses, local businesses. And, you know, that's another aspect of it, but sort of going back to what you're, you're saying about your college paper, let me start there first. Why did you feel there was a need at that point to create a paper at Loyola? It was a very similar reason, I would say. I think even in Chicago, there's the Chicago Tribune. There's a number of weeklies and alternative news outlets. But my friends and I, who I was very close with and organizing with on campus and off campus, we just felt like there wasn't a radical enough voice and a voice that was very plainly and unapologetically said what we felt needed to be said about the state of both the city and the country and That was also youth-led. That was the critical aspect to us was a lot of these institutions might be progressive, but they are still led by middle-aged to older people. And we think it at that time, we thought it was very necessary to have young people taking leadership roles and being able to go against a lot of traditional journalistic norms and be able to say what we felt was happening. And so that was also another reason that we decided to start it. Okay, so how would you describe the defender to someone? You know, this is what we do. These are the types of stories we tell. Definitely. Well, we are a radical black nonprofit digital news startup. We launched in July 2021, as I mentioned, and we cover, usually the way I describe it is we cover anything that's of concern to the black community, both locally, nationally, and as we continue to grow, even internationally. We have covered, at this point, we have broken between 15 and 20 national news stories. Just a few examples of stories that we've covered. Maybe two or three months ago, we broke, helped break the story of 16-year-old Ralph Yarrow, who was shot 
once in the head and then again while he was on the ground simply for going and ringing the wrong doorbell here in Kansas City. A lot of people will remember that story. The story was covered initially, I believe, in Fox 4 or another local TV station here, but they didn't mention his race, and they also didn't mention the race of the man who shot him. And so a lot of people just overlooked the story. I even overlooked the story until I had we have very close relationship with a lot of people in our community. So people often tend to send us news tips just through our DMs on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter. And I had numerous people who continued to reach out to me and say, can you please look more into this? And so I looked into the story. I got in contact with Ralph's aunt and I find out that he's a young black kid. And I found out that the man who shot him was white and that he said, don't come around here ever again before he shot Ralph, that he looked Ralph in his eyes before he shot him. And that he shot him in the head and then shot him again once he was on the ground. So that was a much different story than what we were initially told, which the initial headline that came out in the TV news station just said, teen shot in air for going to the wrong house, which just sounds like something that could happen anywhere. And like, there's nothing problematic about it. And so that's one example. In three days after 72 hours after we released that story, President Joe Biden commented on it. Vice President Kamala Harris had commented on it. Holly Berry all types of celebrities and politicians had commented on it. And even our mayor said that if it wasn't for us, our news outlet specifically, that the world would not know about that story. A different story that we have covered and broke was one that we're continuing to do investigation on, but the story of missing black women here in Kansas City in mid to late September of last year. We received numerous reports and testimonies that Black women specifically in our community were going missing and that there was a potential serial killer here in Kansas City. And we received those numerous testimonies and reports from a number of people in our community. And then a local bishop here in Kansas City ended up making a video about it. And we reposted the video essentially with the caveat and disclaimer saying that we're still looking into this information, that we don't have a trusting relationship with our police department and we don't trust that they will have the best interest of our public of the black community's public safety at mind. And so we're going to publish this information and we'll provide updates as soon as possible. And as soon as we get more information and essentially three days after, because when we published that story, it, it immediately went viral. I think it got around like six or 700,000 views on TikTok. In addition to our website and the other platforms that we publish on and three days after we publish it, our police department just comes out and without having reached out to us or reached out to any other community leaders, our police department says these are completely unfounded rumors and there's no basis to support these claims. That's verbatim what they said without ever reaching out to us to ask where we got the information from. So every single news outlet in the city and even Newsweek and the Atlanta Black Star just parroted precisely what our police department said. And so essentially everybody was all the TV news stations, radio stations in our city were essentially calling us fake news for about two to three weeks until three weeks later, a 22-year-old Black woman escaped the basement of a man named Timothy Hazlitt Jr., who was a 37-year-old white man who had kidnapped her. She told the investigators that she had been kidnapped off of Prospect Avenue, which was the exact same street that we said in our initial reports. And she said, that she had been kidnapped in early September, which was the exact same time frame that we had said in our report as well. And so she confirmed exactly what we had said was happening. And as a result of that case, which is still ongoing, and just about a month and a half ago, they found a second victim of Timothy Hazlitt Jr. in a blue barrel floating in the Missouri River. 
as a result of that case and our reporting on it, our police department, which had previously disbanded the missing persons unit, reinstated the missing persons unit a few months ago now as a direct result of that story. So those are a few. And we we also do cover a lot of education, both racism and education, but we also highlight positive things because as much as we highlight these injustices and bring them to light, we think it's equally important to highlight and uplift the positive things that are happening in our community. So we uplift what we call Black Student of the Month. Sometimes it's a debate student. Sometimes it's a YouTuber. Sometimes it's a musician. We talk a lot about positive things that are happening and highlight Black-owned businesses and things like that, too. So, Wow. What would you say to somebody who said, oh, you're just doing advocacy work. You're not really following journalistic ethics. You're just looking for sensational things to advocate whatever your political agenda is. I'd say that's exactly what we were doing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, exactly right. Yeah. Very much in line with the tradition of the Black press. And that's the reason why I started my own news outlet was because I had very much had an issue with things like a lot of the ethics and values that are put forth through the Society of Professional Journalism or the Associated Press, where a lot of the philosophy and values things like objectivity come from. I had a lot of issues with that and I saw it to be problematic. And I'm not the only one who sees it that way. There's a lot of people, even at places like UT Austin, there's actually a specific philosophy of journalism called solidarity journalism. And that's what we practice. And so we are very dedicated to truth. We're very dedicated to accuracy. And we don't think that being an advocacy news outlet keeps us from doing those things. And one of the things that you talked about that I thought was really good and really smart was standing by your story after the police come out and say something and then the other news outlets, you know, sort of give deference to the police in that situation. You stuck with your story. That's phenomenal. And I agree with you in a lot of things about the the longtime quote unquote ethics or rules with which journalism operates. And a lot of those rules reflect a different type of, of journalism that we're kind of dealing with now and what you're sort of describing in your startup to me sounds like something that's very vital is something that's very close to people and not so institutional if you know what i mean absolutely i think i would agree 100 percent. i think like when i first started and the reason that we're called the kansas city defender is because i was very inspired by the chicago defender and i probably read that biography of that news outlet probably at least four to five times like as i was starting the defender and I'm very, very inspired by, and I see as the blueprint, the history of the radical black press. And even one of my favorite documentaries is called Soldiers Without Swords. It's, on, it's free and available on YouTube. And one of the primary quotes that they say in that documentary about the black press is, the black press has always been a press of advocacy. And a lot of people also don't know that the black press, historically speaking, for it was targeted by programs, government programs, was the second most influential institution in the Black community behind the Black church. And that was because they actually had physical presences. And that's something that we can talk a little bit about. They actually had physical presences in the community. And that's also part of what we do. Only half of our organization is editorial. The other half is what we call community programs. So we've organized basketball tournaments. We held a hip hop concert on Juneteenth. A week and a half from now, we're having a Young Black Writer social. We've had open mic nights. 
We do what we call grocery buyouts where we raise money and go to grocery stores in black neighborhoods and give direct cash to black people while they're checking out at the grocery line. We have a free clothing program and we also do political educations biweekly for anybody in the community that wants to join us. And that was the reason at the beginning I said I don't necessarily see myself as a journalist. I see myself more as an organizer. And that's part of our mission statement is we want to provide information for the survival and flourishing of Black people in our community. But nowhere in our mission statement does it say anything about journalism. So, you know, I've talked to many people on this podcast who are talking about, you know, we need to have diversity in our newsroom. And then also we need to diversify our content. We need to have people, diverse reporters, so that they better reflect the community they're in. But then also, you know, how do we make that connection? And to me, the model that you described makes perfect sense. You have identified your community. You're bringing the, forth the issues that nobody else is covering. And, you know, the engagement is like on street level. It's not a message board. You're out there. You've got staff dedicated to going out there and being involved. I think that's a different, as you pointed out, is a different type of model that I think can teach people a lot. Well, how big a staff do you have? How's it kind of structured? I'm the only full-time person on our team, but I just hired a part-time managing editor about two and a half months ago who is amazing and has just taken our organization to a completely new level. And we also just brought on our first class of fellows, what we call the Young Defender Fellows. We have four writer fellows in the first class, and we also have an organizer fellow. But essentially everybody, even the writers in our organization, everybody identifies as an organizer. And those are just the people who are actually on the staff. But outside of that, we probably have about 15, between 15 and 20 people who are in our community programs who just work on a volunteer basis. What's the feedback you're getting from, from the community? What are they telling about the way you're, you're bringing information to them and, and the way they're or, you know, participating in the community as organizers? I think people love it. I mean, especially the young people. One of the ways that we began growing really quickly, especially because over 60% of our audience is between the ages of 13 and 30 years old. And so a lot of our audience, especially locally, is literally in high school. And the reason that is, is because when we first started, we were covering a lot of racist things that were happening in high school. And I'm, I remember personally, like I mentioned, I'm from a suburb outside of Kansas City. When I was growing up, white kids, a lot of them would just say the N-word and there was just nothing I could do about it. And like I could tell somebody, but there was just like nothing was going to happen. So that happens now. But we publish when those things happen and we've helped to get superintendents replaced there is a, a, a white teacher who repeatedly said the N-word at a school here, even after black students were telling him to stop and like begging him to stop and saying that it was problematic. And he kept saying it. And those types of things have historically just been buried under the rug. And so now we will actually go and interview students themselves and ask them what they think should happen, what they feel. And that is just a, a completely different, at least here locally, majority of the time, whenever these types of situations happen, the news will go to the superintendent or the news will go to a principal, but the students never get to have their own voices heard. And so when we emerge as a platform where students can actually feel empowered and know that there is a news outlet that will listen to them and give a platform to their voices, I think they deeply appreciated that. And that was why we grew so quickly amongst a young demographic. 
So I think that's among that audience, but just generally amongst the broader black community and the community at large, I think people really appreciate the fact that we do have a bold and unapologetic advocacy voice. I think young people especially are drawn towards that. Now, I know you mentioned that the, one of the stories went viral on TikTok. So I guess that means that you, you use TikTok with a younger audience. How is that audience like getting your content? We have a couple of different strategies. We use each platform differently because we think each platform has a different culture, essentially, in terms of how people use it and what types of content they're looking for on the platform while they're on there. And so, for instance, our Instagram audience, we do post political content. But when we first started on TikTok, we actually did what we just called street interviews. And that was just things like we had one of our people on our team was just walking around at a place called Westport here where a lot of people go to bars and clubs and stuff. And they were just interviewing people and saying, like, how's how is the dating scene in Kansas City? And so it was like a very lighthearted, fun, engaging kind of way. And so people might like that story or they might like that post on our TikTok and that would bring them into the algorithm essentially. And they might follow us from that. And oftentimes that was how we actually would first engage young people is through cultural content, through things like restaurants or hip hop music. A lot of we cover a lot of hip hop out here also, the hip hop scene. And so we cover a lot of these things that might not seem directly related to news, but it helps us build trust amongst our audiences and amongst our community. And then when we do post news and information and even something about a policy, a local policy change, then they are a lot more likely to engage with those more serious topics. How do you test things? How do you adapt and change? I would say two of the biggest things that immediately come to mind is like, I don't have any journalistic background. Our managing editor doesn't come from a journalistic background. Nobody on our team actually comes from a journalistic background. So there have been times where we have had to like resend the story. And it's just like a lesson learned basically in terms of like, we might not believe the police, but we also need to have like more than one or two sources in order to confirm and verify all the information that we are publishing. And so one of the things that I can't necessarily say I wish I would have known because I think it is just through trial and error because we want to innovate and go radically against the traditional journalistic norms. And that was something that we are very intentional about is not doing things the conventional way. And so I think it was inevitable that there are going to be times that we do mess up. And so I don't necessarily wish that I would have done it differently, but that's just something that is just a lesson learned kind of thing. I think that's one piece. And I think the second piece is we're a nonprofit, but I think whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit, a lot of Black people, especially, we don't have access to capital. We don't have access to a lot of this just general financial knowledge or nonprofit management knowledge. And that has definitely been the biggest learning curve, which I think we are very much over the most difficult aspects now. And we're becoming a lot more sustainable. But in the earliest days, that was certainly the most difficult part was just figuring out how are we going to survive literally because, yeah, there's not a huge amount of like now philanthropy is starting to change a little bit, but there's still massive discrepancies in how much funding white news outlets get and how much funding black news outlets get. So 
so you're getting um, grants, is that what it is? You're applying for grants, that's your revenue stream? Big part and major gifts. And then we also are very reliant on people in the community just becoming monthly donors also. So politics, you know, the last election, the upcoming elections, are you, are you heavily involved in, in covering that? We're definitely going to be very involved. We, we didn't exist for the 2020. I meant local. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, for a local, we did a voter guide. So we sent out questions to all of the candidates, the city council candidates, as well as the mayor. And we provided grades essentially for the candidates. We had a whole set of criteria that we lay out and we provided grades for each of the candidates, depending on how much, just how they answered the questions. So that was our involvement, which I would say is somewhat limited in the last election. But the coming elections, we plan to have like town halls, another voter guide, and to be a lot more involved in the process. You did say that people do, you know, give you tips and things, you know, how is that sort of manifesting, you know, that people communicating you and giving you tips and things? Definitely. Well, we try to have like a very personal and relatable voice, I would say, on social media. So we're not like some faceless entity that just like has automated responses on our Instagram. Like we've gone back and forth with people. Like a, a lot of times people will try to disprove our stories or say, then like we'll be going back and forth in the comment section. And even like sometimes we'll use slang in our reporting. Like, of course, depending on the platform, if it's on our actual website, we won't use slang or if it's on Twitter, because we see those as kind of more like official information publishing places, but for things like Instagram or TikTok, our audience is a lot younger. And so we like to use language that is very relatable. So we'll use slang, like we use slang all the time on our Instagram and Instagram stories. So that also is a piece of what helps build trust is when people see us talking like how they talk. Students have just reached out like, I'm going through this in school and like, do you have any resources for us? And so we, we can serve in that capacity where we're like providing them resources or pointing them in the right direction to know where to go or who to reach out to or connecting them with other community organizations. And so it's very much a lot more than just publishing news and being an outlet. Like we very much want to, and hopefully have established ourselves as a place that people can go to for resources beyond just news, but also services. And that's something that we want to continue building out. And I think because of that, it's very much cyclical is usually how I describe it. But like the more stories that we break and the more awareness that we get in our community, which I think even right now, we haven't even come close to like reaching the entire, like there's over 865,000 Black people across both Missouri and Kansas. And right now, across all of our platforms, we only have, I think, 75,000 followers. And so there's 865,000 Black people alone, which we also have quite a lot of people who aren't Black that follow us. And so there's still a lot more people who we think we can reach. And we definitely have a lot of people who, in terms of the cyclical thing I was talking about, the more we gain awareness or people become aware of our organization, the more people who share information with us and then we're able to publish another story and then more people give us information. So... Yeah, again, that all makes sense. 
it's just so simple. It's so smart. No, you sound like you're on a good path, and I wish you the best of luck on it. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.